Hello and welcome to Hiker Trash Podcast. I'm your host, Dom Aprilli, trail name footage. And as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit under the weather, but I didn't want to let that stop me from posting this episode. This episode is sponsored by Garage Grown Gear. Garage Grown Gear sells wildly cool gear from small and startup outdoor companies. If you are looking for some great gear from some incredible brands, head on over to garagegrowngear.com and use the code HIKERTRASH at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. For this episode, I interviewed Stefan Abraham, trail named Two Trails. I found this conversation very inspirational for a number of different reasons that I'm excited for you guys to hear. So without wasting any more time, here is the conversation with Two Trails. Hi everyone, my name is Stefan Abraham, aka Two Trails, and I'm originally from Chicago, but uh, was based in Kansas City. I hiked the AT in spring, summer, fall of 2017. Um, so just for a little background, tell me about yourself. Uh, what do you do for a living now? Yeah, so um, before the AT, I was a consultant specifically in healthcare information technology. I worked for a healthcare software company, basically as um, technological consultant, um, project manager for implementing. Basically, uh, if you think want to think about it, when you go to a hospital and you see the doctor or nurse clicking on all the different pieces of software, um, almost a 50% chance that it was my company's software. Okay, well, and, and what was your role? Um, technical project manager consultant. So basically, I would travel um, to clients and work with them with installing our software, customizing it for their sites, and overall implementing it in what we call going live with the software. So turning the switch and making sure everyone's using it. How did you first learn about the AT? So that's kind of an interesting story. So my dad took a job out in D.C. when I was a kid, um, late 90s. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we couldn't move there at the same time. So my my mom and my brother and I were living in Minnesota um, while he was working that job. But in the summers, uh, my mom was a college professor, so she had her summers off. So we would go in the summer to D.C. and stay with my dad. Um, he was there for, I think, two years. Um, and one of the things we'd love to do as kids especially um, growing up, was hiking, uh, specifically um, around in the Tucson area. My parents both did their PhDs at University of Arizona um, when we were really little kids. So it was basically, you know, a free recreation that we could do that was, um, you know, affordable for parents on a grad student budget. Um, So back to the AT, when my dad was living um, in DC years later, we would go out to like Shenandoah and hike. And I actually had no idea that the trail went along through Shenandoah. So we were day hiking one day and we were coming the other direction. We were probably going southbound now that I think of it, because there was a guy coming um, the other direction from us and he had a little beagle with him. And we're, you know, you just stop and you talk like you normally do. And we asked him, you know, where are you coming from? And he said, Georgia. And that just totally blew my mind as like, uh, you know, I was probably nine or 10. I think this was 1999 probably, or maybe 2000, probably 99. Um, and it just blew my mind that somebody had come from Georgia. And, you know, obviously as a 10 year old, I had no idea about scale. So I just figured he came from, you know, Mexico or something. That's crazy because a few other people, they found out the same way. They're on the AT and they end up bumping into a through hiker. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty common, especially when you see somebody, you know, you're out on a day hike and you've got your little plastic bottle of water and a granola bar and you see this guy coming through with back then, especially, you know, big external frame packs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And these guys look so legit and you're like, whoa, what is this? Yeah, I'm sure they definitely stand out to the the average day hiker. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I, I don't remember it necessarily, but he probably smelled because I know <laughs> that I definitely did. Yeah, I mean, being a, a pass-through hiker at this point, it's hard like not to think about the whole trail community. But I guess when you're outside that bubble, a lot of people really have no idea about this like subculture. Absolutely no clue, especially about the through-hiking subculture. I would say, like, when I told people that I was going to do it, you know, they some would maybe know that there's a trail out there that you can do, but the actual like that people you know, year in, year out are like through hikers and some of these more like, you know, famous through hikers that you hear about in the whole trail community. I mean, to the average person, um, no idea. Yeah. So do you remember any like good times in particular of when you were a kid growing up hiking the Shenandoahs or uh, anywhere else? Yeah. I mean, so really the majority of the memories hiking came from when we were in Tucson. So there's a, there's a mountain outside of Tucson called Mount Lemon, and it's, you know, Tucson, obviously, middle of the desert in Arizona, but Mount Lemon had skiing because it was tall enough that, you know, there would snow would come in the winter. Um, so we would, you know, go up there and it would just be a, a respite from the cold and get to play around with the snow and that kind of stuff. And I remember one, you know, vivid memory of mine is my brother and I are, you know, kind of hiking a little bit off trail and we see like bear prints in the snow and we, and my, you know, wisely enough my brother was like we are not following these prints and my dad and i you know like a couple of dummies were like oh we should probably follow these and see where they go so we were totally on inexperienced hikers um i think the last before that the last hiking my dad did um was with my mother actually on their quote-unquote honeymoon i think about a year after they got married uh, my parents are from india and actually i was born in india too um uh, I moved here when I was three, when my parents started going to grad school. Um, when my parents got married initially, they did a hike um, along the Himalayas in um, northern India. So they I, they never summited any peaks or anything, but it was more like kind of a high route kind of hiking. Uh, but by, I think it was the Indian Mountain Club or something like that. They would run hikes out there, and they did that when they when they were young. That's awesome. So hiking's kind of in the blood. Yeah, and so, you know, really... After they graduated and, you know, started working, we didn't really do too much hiking. We moved to Minnesota after that. There was great hiking in Minnesota, but we didn't do too much because I got really wrapped up in, you know, in organized sports and I was playing tennis fairly seriously. And that's kind of like an all year thing. Um, so I really fell out of hiking for, for many, many, many years. And then, you know, in college, I, I went to college and central Illinois, not a ton of great hiking out there. So really it wasn't until much later after I graduated college that I'd gotten back into hiking at all. And it was mostly day, day hiking, to be honest. And how much of an impact do you think that hiking with your parents when you were younger and they were in grad school, like, like made on you as a person? Because it sounds like you, you put it down for a while um, and it was more of like a vacation thing, but you picked it back up like was there anything that you think those experiences instilled in you and maybe I, even affected you growing up yeah i think definitely the um challenge of mountains is there and the you know having lived in 
big cities, you know, you get so used to pollution and smog and all those kind of things. And when you can, especially in Tucson, you just rise up out of that desert and you hit, you know, 5,000 feet or whatever it is. I don't know the exact height of Mount Lemmon, but you hit that, you know, kind of um, altitude and the air is just so fresh and you have that evergreen smell and like crisp snow. And I mean, it made a lot of like very formative sense memories in my head, but you know, it didn't last because I got so wrapped up in, you know, doing the right thing and, you know, building my resume for college and excelling in sports and school and all that other stuff that you just get distracted away from stuff that really matters, which is enjoying nature, you know, and the like. Yep. Unfortunately, that's what happens for a lot of people. I, I think my story is all too common. You know, as a kid, you're given a lot of freedom and to explore um, and you go out and you know, check out the woods, actually, um, which brings back kind of in my mind when we were, you know, when my parents were professors in in Minnesota, where we moved after they graduated, we were just kind of free roam kids. I mean, it was a smallish town, smallish college town, uh, maybe I think now it's probably around 100,000 people, Mankato, Minnesota. It's not not terribly big, very safe. You know, I could go out literally from dawn till dusk and my parents had no fears. I would just ride my bike everywhere. There were some bike trails we would go out on and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I didn't do a lot of hiking per se, but I was outdoors a lot because, you know, I was just a free range kid. Do you think having that type of freedom and being able to kind of adventure around and explore your surroundings um, would later affect you like having the desire to to through hike and or just do adventure in general I think it certainly helped I don't know I mean I feel you know like one of those people who who lost their true selves almost kind of thing um it did give me a sense I mean I've I got caught out a bunch of times when I was a kid you know as a free-range kid getting injured like I remember taking my bike one time down the um the trail that is outside of town and just absolutely eating it over my handlebars and like falling down a ravine um and you know just i you know if i had done that now i would have like grade three lacerations all over my body but back then you just kind of dusted yourself off picked yourself up and limped home um same thing i was rollerblading one time at dark down a hill home from my friend's house and i just ate it and just basically skid up the entire side of my face like from one side all the way down and i remember you know rollerblading home even after falling and my parents weren't home this is the time when my dad was living in dc so it was only my mom and she was still at work and so i come home my face is all just totally bloody and gashed up and i tell my brother it's like all right first off we have to clean up clean this up before mom gets home because we have to tell her obviously she's gonna figure it out with my face but it can't be uh as bad as it looks so he would like he'd pick the gravel out of my uh face and kind of like washed it and i just kind of laid on the couch with a towel until my mom came home and could actually like do something about it wow that's a good dude he's like your partner in crime trying to help you out <laughs> oh absolutely i mean he's only he was only a year older than me so i mean we were basically like twins pretty much and how was that uh growing up with your brother having a companion to experience all these um family uh adventures and hikes with 
I mean, it was awesome. At, at, you know, on, at one hand, I would say that we were very competitive with each other. Since he was just a grade ahead of me, everything he did, I had to do better. Like, whatever grade he got, I had to get a better grade. Whatever test score he got, I had to do better. You know, if he was... If he made varsity as a, you know, whatever, as a sophomore, I would have to make it as a freshman. So it it was a little antagonistic growing up. We were very, very competitive with each other. Um, but after college, after I started college, we got, you know, much more closely as friends, I would say. We have different personalities, but we became truly friends after college. Okay. That sounds like a good mind state to have because I feel like in some scenarios, um, you know, if you had an older brother that was successful you'd be like oh like i'm never gonna live up to you know those standards and kind of go the other way and be like i don't care about anything but you use it as motivation um which i think is awesome and um definitely a good mindset to have like as a young kid growing up yeah i mean we could not have been more different i mean i was always kind of short growing up and my brother um is extremely was extremely tall i mean he was probably i remember when we were like 12 and 13 he was already like 6'3 and maybe 120 pounds soaking wet so he was like real long and gangly whereas I was a little shorter a little more compact and strong so while he might have had you know reach on me in our fights we were always pretty even gotcha so to segue why did you hike the AT so the real like you know crux of the story was that um in 2016 um in the summer i got a call um from my parents and they told me that they'd heard from his girlfriend and that he um passed away in a car accident so he was commuting home from his internship um and was just about to start his final semester in college and you know, just he had a long commute from Nashville back to where he lived, kind of outside Nashville, um, where his girlfriend lived, actually. Um, and, yeah, he just hit hit the back of a truck. We have no idea what happened. Um, there were no signs of anything. There was no problem. There was no, he wasn't drunk, nothing like that. It's just a, a really unfortunate accident that, um, you know, totally, totally rocked my world. I mean, I can distinctly remember sitting with my friends, you know, where it was a Wednesday um in Kansas City, we were just, uh, you know, we got in Chipotle and we were watching a watching a Royals game all together, about four or five of us. And I got a call from his girlfriend and I was like, oh, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll call her after the game. Um, kind of, you know, X that call, um, kept watching and then got a call, you know, a couple minutes later. And my parents, it was my mom. And I know not to dodge a call from my mom. And that's when I found out. And it was literally just like I just. I mean, I collapsed on the floor. I had no idea what was going on. Totally, totally just earth shattering. Um, my friends were obviously there and they are a, you know, as close as family to me. These guys are really, really amazing guys. Um, actually, I was just uh, on, I don't know when this airs, but on, you know, Sunday of this week, I just came back on Saturday was one of those guys wedding and that I was the best man in. So, I mean, these guys are, they were absolutely amazing, you know, packed up all my stuff, went to work to grab my work stuff, washed my clothes, packed me, bought me my ticket, you know, cause I could barely function. I had no idea what I was doing. They bought me my ticket in the morning to fly to Nashville 
to be with my parents um, who were, you know, headed from Chicago there, you know, and I was there sitting in the airport in that morning and just absolutely having a total breakdown. I mean, I'm not an emotional person, really. I don't display them that frequently. Um, but just, you know, weeping in the terminal, I can just distinctly remember. And a very nice couple next to me, you know, asked me what the problem was. And I told them they're, you know, obviously expressed their sympathies and stuff. And so I was sitting there in that airport terminal, you know, six in the morning trying to fly to Nashville. And I just started thinking about like all the great times that my brother and I had together, um, which weren't that many because really... Once college hit, we, you know, he left for college a year before me, then I was wrapped up in it. Then he left for the military. He served for, you know, seven years, um, you know, served a couple tours in Afghanistan. And I had, you know, not really been able to connect with him that much um, just because our lives as adults got really busy. You know, we'd see each other at holidays and stuff, but that was it. And so I was thinking back on all these, like, great times that we had as kids. And the one that really stood out was hiking, hiking Mount Lemmon as kids. It was some of the happiest times I've ever had. So knowing that, um, and also the fact that, um, so kind of where this all is circling back to is that um, he was about to graduate with his accounting degree. He had left college and joined the military um, and had done that for like seven years. He was an air traffic controller, um, you know, awesome, had a great military career. And so then he had left and was finishing his accounting degree. And so he's one semester away. He was doing his internships at, um, at Deloitte and we had planned. So the weird thing is that from high school, um, and college, I know a lot of accountants for some reason. And so I knew that they have busy season, right? So busy season for them is basically like January through till May where, you know, they're filing all these, you know, audits and all that kind of stuff. So I knew that after busy season, my friends always had a lot of flexibility when it came to vacations. Um, so we were planning in 2017 to do, the Smokies section of the AT. Since he lived in Tennessee, it was an easy drive for him out there. I could easily fly out and we were just going to go, I think, what is it, 80 miles, something like that. We were just going to go knock out those 80 miles in like a week, you know, a real leisurely kind of hike. So combining that, so the plan to hike the Smokies and the great memories I had with my brother hiking as a kid, I was just like, okay, time to do something you know, really amazing. And the one thing that I always give credit to my brother for is he never took the easy way out of anything. Like I've always been kind of a slacker in that, like I take the path of least resistance. And my brother always, you know, was, he, he would set his mind to something and whatever that goal was, he would go complete it. So I just decided like, what is this impossible goal? What is this thing that I have no right to do? but is difficult. And because it's difficult, I should go and do it. And that was through hiking the AT. Wow. Well, let me just say that I'm terribly, terribly sorry about your loss. That sounds inconceivably terrible. And uh, it's actually like amazing to hear that you have surrounded yourself with such like a great group of people that just like, right right 
when everything was falling apart, they were like helping pick you back up. And, uh, that's really amazing and inspiring. And I, I hope that, um, everyone has people like that, that would without hesitation, just, just help them and, you know, put them before themselves and in times of yeah. need like that. Absolutely. I might not have a sibling anymore, but I certainly have, you know, proverbial brothers in those guys. There you go. And uh, just briefly, how, how was the wedding? How was being a best man? <laughs> you know, it was funny. It actually went really, really well. Um, it was very emotional, obviously. I mean, see my two friends um, get married. They both met. We all kind of worked together at that at the company, at the, the healthcare company that we worked at. So they were, you know, really, I mean, just so supportive and, you know, they never, I think that maybe all of them didn't know what it all entailed to hike the AT, but they, they all were a hundred percent behind me. That's incredible. And I'm just like picturing you at the airport, kind of just like searching around through your mind and then just landing on this, you know? Yeah. It, it really came like almost like a lightning bolt. I have no idea where that inspiration came from, but it hit me. And from that like second, I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, all the pieces like fell together in that moment and, you know, piecing together you guys hiking as children and bumping into this guy in Shenandoah. So, you know, what a through hike is and then planning this other hike. And then, and then you're just like, you know what, my, my brother never takes the easy way out and everything just like clicking. Um, yeah. It's... I mean, I have no idea. I'm not a very religious person. It almost sounds divine intervention or something like that, but I, I don't know what to attribute it to, but it really like came at the right place at the right time. Yeah. It sounds like small experiences just kind of nudging you in that direction and you being able to kind of pick up on those signs, which is amazing. So yeah, talk to me about um, how this hike started to gain traction. So... I'd, so I first, like I said, in the airport, I knew that I wanted to do it. And by the time we'd gotten to Tennessee and we had kind of two memorial services, we had one in Tennessee for his um, friends there. So he was, he was stationed at Fort Campbell, which is in the Kentucky, Tennessee border. And that's why, you know, he had met his girlfriend and all those kind of things and had moved out there um, after the army even. So I was talking to some of his friends and I was just slowly like formulating a plan um, in my head. And one of them was that I'd wanted to collect some stories, you know, so I talked to his army buddies and I just wanted to hear stories about him. And I thought maybe I'd like to, you know, somehow be, you know, read them or speak them aloud on all these mountaintops, et cetera, et cetera. It, that didn't actually happen, but you know, it just got my mind percolating. Um, my family and friends, I think, all treated me, I would say, extremely gently. Um, you know, obviously, with this grievous loss, you know, no one was going to say, you're not going to make it. You know, what are you doing? Don't be an idiot. Don't quit your job. Don't do any of those things. You know, they, they treated me with kid gloves, which, you know, was good. You know, regardless of if they'd said all those things, I was going to do it. But it, they were very um, compassionate with me. But I don't know if most of them thought that I would actually be able to do it, to be honest. So from that time, so from the summer of 16 till the spring of 
17 is when I planned to start off northbound. It was just basically, you know, voracious researching about the AT. And the one thing my brother and I were both, um, you know, we're both real like tech nerds. We love gadgets and all that kind of stuff. So we'd always be sending each other reviews of like, oh, check out this new phone, check out these speakers, you know, check out this new whatever, all these you know, gadgets. And we'd always research a ton because, you know, um, growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. So a lot of times we would pool, you know, our birthdays because our birthdays are actually um, two days apart. So he was born April 1st, 86, and I'm April 3rd, 87. So we're almost I mean, basically two days apart from being Irish twins. So we'd always pool our birthdays and Christmases together to get one awesome gift. So it'd always be like, all right, dude, we can get an Xbox this, uh, you know, this Christmas, if we both plan on it and we tell our parents and then one of us can get like some games or one of us can get a controller. And, you know, so we'd always like be so obsessive about researching. Um, and that kind of transitioned into preparing for this through hike. I literally, I cannot tell you how many blogs I read, how many YouTube videos I watched, how many gear lists I poured over. And I'm kind of a weird researcher myself. So I have all these like Excel spreadsheets comparing like prices to like weight to, you know, ratings and like this complex decision matrix on like how to figure out what gear to take. Because I knew like, once I started, I'm not quitting. So I just wanted to set myself up best to complete the AT. And I learned about ultralight hiking, I learned about all that kind of stuff. In a crash course, you know, from fall of 16 to spring of 17. Do you remember any of those resources that were particularly helpful? Yeah, I mean, I can name them right now. I could say Andrew Skirka's blog, um, Reddit's Ultralight subreddit, uh, White Blaze forum, uh, Appalachian Trials, uh, Badger um, Badger's website, which I think is called The Trek now. Um, all these like you know famous through hiking resources. Let me see. On YouTube, I watched uh, Dixie's through hike of the AT. Uh, who else did I watch? Just a lot of like gear review videos from like Backpacker Magazine, you know, all just if you can think of a backpacking related information source, I was on it, read it, watched it, whatever, listened to it. Nice. Yeah, you definitely want to do your, di your due diligence uh, before embarking on a six or so month journey into the woods. Yeah, definitely. So do you think that it was important? you and your brother were actually having this like pre-bonding experience before what was supposed to be like an epic journey together. Um, looking back now, like how do you feel about those times where you guys would just be going back and forth, sharing research? I mean, I obviously miss him every day and I wish that he could have done it with me. It, I never could have gotten him to through hike, you know, even if we'd conceived of this idea, let's say we'd gotten and gone on that Smokies hike, there's no way I could have convinced him to take six months off of his life to do a through hike. But um, at the same time, I think that he would have been proud of me for doing it. And um, I think he would have supported my decision to, you know, leave my job and all those kind of things. For him, you know, his life was a grand adventure. Uh, and mine up to that point had not really been, you know, he had been to Afghanistan and done all this stuff he was 
when he was in the military, he learned how to jump out of helicopters and like do all this like crazy rappelling stuff and like mountain warfare training and like all this stuff that, you know, he would tell me about like, oh, we went out into the desert for three weeks and did like desert exercises and like all this crazy stuff that like for me in my like boring office job was just so inconceivable. So I think he would have been proud of me for like definitely going out there and like pushing the boundaries of adventure and those kind of things. Um, and I think there's, you know, to get into like the cultural side of things as an Indian American, you know, slash Asian American, our culture is so um, focused on success, um, monetarily, academically, all those kind of things that we never think about these, these grand adventures and that life, it can be more than getting good grades and getting a great job and becoming a doctor or engineer or whatever it is. So when he broke the mold, when he left college and he left behind, um, a computer science degree that he really didn't want to finish, uh, too much, um, and left for the military that was so crazy to us because especially growing up, I was the one who wanted to join the military. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to be, you know, I also thought I could be, you know, would be a Marine scout sniper. Um, but I, I have terrible eyesight to begin with. So that wasn't going to happen. And also my mom made me promise her, um, her family was involved in the Indian military and she had lost an uncle in the India Pakistan conflict so she made me promise to never join the military, um, which I did. And, you know, I would have loved, I think, to have gone to like a service academy or something like that. Um, but I made that promise to my mom when, I, you know, when I was in high school to not join. And then when my brother did join, you know, it was this like thing that like no one in our family ever did. No one I knew, none of my, you know, friends in Chicago who were Asian American, hardly any of them joined the military. And so it was like... He he was the first he was the first in almost everything, obviously, because he was older than me, you know, the first to get busted drinking, the first to like, you know, go to the military, the f like everything he did. He was always groundbreaking for me. You know what I mean? Like when he did all these things, then I could come a year later and do the same thing. And they'd be like, ah, look, he already did it. Like, you know, it's a big deal. And so I think he kind of resented me a little bit when we were growing up, because like every time he would get in trouble, like this humongous blowout, like, oh, my God, we found vodka in your room. What is going on? And then, like, when they found me, they're like, yeah, whatever. Your brother's all right. That ship has sailed. <laughs> That's funny. Your brother sounds like a badass. Yeah, I mean, totally, total, total badass. And, you know, I think the way he lived my way, way he, sorry, the way he lived his life um, gave me a good blueprint for how to live my life you know, going forward, I think. And what's your brother's name? I don't think it was mentioned. Sorry. Yeah. Um, his name was Johan. Um, so weirdly enough, my, my brother and I have both have German names, um, uh, Stefan and Johan, but, uh, it was, I think partially my dad liked it. He worked for a German oil company when we were like real small babies and, you know, or sorry, before we were born. So then like, I guess maybe when it came around, you know, gave us some German names. Interesting. So once your parents kind of figured out that you were really going to hike um, and it was, you know, a reality that you would leave your job and responsibilities, um, how did they, you know, like, did they change their perspective on it? Did they react differently being that 
hiking was important to them at one point in time? You know, I don't know if it was due to the hiking being important to them because I honestly I think that was just a trip that they took and now it, it wasn't that important. Um, but I think they were supportive from the perspective of, perspective of I think they saw me galvanized, you know, really focused on something and they knew they couldn't dissuade me from doing it. So therefore, the only default is to support, like, because what else are they going to do? Right. And I think, you know, my dad and my mom both, you know, this massive goal in front and, you know, he's going to go out and achieve it. I think they had also thought that while it's not like, you know, getting a medical degree or, you know, whatever it is, winning you know, what some kind of medal or something. Um, it still is a goal to be accomplished and it's worthwhile and it's something that not many people do and therefore, you know, it has some merit. Right. It is a great achievement and I'm sure eventually they came around and knew that, you know, it was something that you felt like you had to do. Mm -hmm. Were you in shape prior to your hike? Okay. And so did you this, do any training? This is the funny thing. So you know, my job really was one of a ton of travel. At one point, I was probably on the road 45 weeks a year, Monday to Thursday on client sites. So when you're traveling that much for work, you eat garbage because you basically can't cook. So you're just eating at like restaurants and stuff. So I was extremely out of shape, out of shape, you know, too heavy, under strong, you know, all those kind of things. The total nine to five like desk pilot like if you can imagine somebody out of shape who works in an office that was me. okay so did you do any like you know training to prepare you know not too much because so it went from fall to winter to spring so like you know hiking winter totally different beast i don't want to have to buy the gear for that so you know i I worked out some, you know, I did a lot of, I had um, some lower back problems probably from sitting at a desk too much. So I did a lot of like yoga and um, that kind of work just to like make sure that my core was strong. Um, not a lot. I, you know, I didn't, obviously I was still working at my like very demanding job. I was probably still working, you know, 50, 60 plus hours a week. Um, and, you know, on top of that, all this research and all that stuff. So I'd never, I didn't really focus um, on my fitness, which I probably should have, but just reading all those blogs and stuff, everyone says you can't really do anything to prepare for hiking. Even fit people get out there and like struggle. So what instead that I did, my mentality was, okay, what I'm going to do is pad time into my hike. Um, I had no time limit to finish, um, pad those first couple, you know, months and go slow, take it easy and just hike myself into shape. And that's pretty much what I did. Yeah, that was a good call, and I totally agree. There's really no way to prepare yourself. You just got to, you know, start walking, and eventually yeah. you just adjust and you figure out what pace you like is comfortable for you, and, um, you know, you learn all that stuff along the way. Yeah, which is why, I mean, I guess it, it was a valid criticism that people would have had, like, are you going to finish? Obviously, uh, you know, they look at me pre-trail and they're just like, my God, you are so, you are so unprepared for this. Are you going to finish? And that's a valid concern. And I didn't know the answer to that, but I was willing to go out and find out. Right. I mean, even uh, as a thru-hiker and being the person who wants to complete it, it's still hard to fathom just how grand of a... Uh of a challenge it is 
and then especially when you tell other people that you're gonna do it and they you know their first reaction is to question it like what are you crazy you (laughs) sure you really think you can do it and uh you know there's plenty of doubt without their help but um it's yeah it's more of a mental thing sorry uh i was gonna say weirdly enough another guy in that group of friends from kansas city his wedding it was the limiting factor on when i started so he got married i want to say like april 6th or 7th whatever that saturday was um and so and i was in his wedding too so um that was like i couldn't start before that i wasn't gonna like start in march then like well the wedding was in north carolina and then like hike my way to north carolina and then show up like a dirty hobo and then (laughs) go to the wedding and then get back on trail i didn't want to do that so i planned my hike to start after that and i so i did i started april 15th gotcha so can you walk me through how you got to the trail and did you and um did you hike the approach trail or did you just go right to springer I went straight to Springer. So I got to trail. Um, my parents took me to, we drove down to Atlanta. Um, so let's see, let's start before that. Quit my job. Uh, last day was March 31st. Um, spent the rest of the next week, like packing up my house and all that kind of stuff, putting stuff into storage. Um, went to the wedding, came back from the wedding and then drove to Chicago, dropped my car off. i you know, I was kind of a, a bit of a yuppie beforehand. You know, I'd kind of, you know, I, I'd, I'd bought a Corvette in this like quarter life crisis and was like, so I sold the vet and like drove my, my old college car up to Chicago and dumped my stuff there, dumped the car there. Parents drove me, drove me down to Atlanta. Um, didn't do the approach trail. Uh, I, I listened to a lot of people and they're like, yeah, don't even bother with the approach trail. Like, you're not going to think about that when you think about the AT. So I just, Dro- drove the car up to uh, to Springer with actually, luckily enough, so my cousin and uncle were in town. My cousin went, uh, I think he still, so he still goes to Georgia Tech. Um, and so he was in Atlanta and luckily my uncle was in town um, from, the, hit, they were living in Singapore, he had taken a posting out there. So he was in town and so they were there to see me off too. So drove up Springer and they just dropped we did that like one was it point seven up to the top and back to the parking lot and then kind of see you later off off we go. So that that's awesome. That's cool that uh, the timing lined up that you even had more family in town to see you off. Yeah. So when did the magnitude of this hike set in? Was it was it very early on? Like when did you kind of realize like, holy crap, I decided to walk in the woods and over up and down mountains for 2000 miles. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. It didn't hit beforehand. I'll tell you that much. So I just got there and I was like, all right, let's go. Um, time to go time to time to, to beat miles and, and head to Katahdin. And I, you know, I was just full of enthusiasm, no like reality to it. And then obviously you hike those first miles, you know, totally inexperienced hiker. I remember. So after I left my parents at that, um, at that parking lot, I get to, I can't remember what that first shelter is. Um, Stover Creek, maybe. Is that right? Um, I got there and I had eaten like a granola bar and like just some nuts and trail mix or whatever. And then I start and I wanted to get to Hawk Mountain for my first night, uh, either to the shelter or I knew there's a campground up there too, uh, right below the shelter. So I'm going up Hawk Mountain and I'm, you know, it's hot, it's Georgia 
for some reason it was like seven not not seven it was like 80 plus degrees that day and i am just gassed like i get to like halfway up hawk mountain and i'm just like lying back on the like brush literally like about to pass out you know not knowing what i was doing i hadn't drank enough water at the previous at the stover creek when i had stopped hadn't eaten enough you know totally like crack like my glucose just crashed and i was just lying there catching my breath you know breathing through my nose and out through my mouth and like hikers were coming past me and they're like hey man are you all right and i was like oh it's fine i'm just you know gotta eat something it's fine so eventually i make it to you know hawk mountain it's fine nothing happened <laughs> Um, but I was just like totally mentally unprepared to like what it really requires day to day, like hour to hour, planning your water, planning your food intake, all those kind of things. So that was like a wake up call. And then the magnitude of the hike didn't really set in until, let's see, um, 100 miles in. So 100 miles was uh, is Albert Mountain Fire Tower. And it took me so long to get there. I swear it took... I think I was probably maybe 10 or 11 days in and I'd only reached a hundred miles. And I was like, Oh my God, I am so screwed right now. Like I have 2,100 miles to go. I have to do this 21 more times. And that would put me, that would put my finish date in like December. I'm not going to make it. So that's when it really like, Oh boy, uh, something's up. I got to speed up here. I remember Albert Mountain being like the first ascent that I was actually like, all right, this is kind of difficult. Like I had to put my hands on some stones. So like, yeah, it was not cool. I was like, oh my God, this is like a vertical ladder. Is this what this is going to be like? Like little did I know the whites in Southern Maine. It's like, yeah, it is going to be like that. It's going to be worse actually. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, it's hard to fathom uh, when you first start, like how, how crazy all the climbs are going to be. But um, luckily, if you're going northbound, you kind of uh, work your way up to the the difficult stuff in the northeast. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I... It's definitely the more difficult stuff, but I think Georgia is like a a rude awakening to a lot of nobos. It's like, what what do they say? Like, you know, 25% of people quit nobo at, like, Neil's Gap, right? Like. You know, 30 miles and they're just like, screw it. You know, I'm done. And it's so funny because, like, I don't know if it was true or not, but there was this, like, apocryphal tale going down trail of this kid who just, like, dropped, like, two G's worth of gear into the hiker box and was like, screw it. Caught a ride back to Atlanta and flew home. Like, total, you know, Z-Pack setup, like, you know, pack and tent and all kinds of stuff. And he just, like, ditched it and left. And allegedly somebody up trail had gotten a major upgrade on their gear. Really? I mean, that's what people said. I don't know if it's actually true, but yeah. that was the story. It's hard to, if it is true, that's crazy, but it is hard to believe because, you know, even if you're going to quit, why would you throw all that money away into a hiker box? Honestly, <laughs> having gone to gone to school with some rich kids, I could totally see it. I, I knew of a of a kid in college who actually, like, you know, he's... He was from China and came from some incredible wealth and like bought a Ferrari and it kept. So I went to school in um, Urbana-Champaign, Central Illinois, University of Illinois, and he'd bought this Ferrari and, um, you know, it was it kept breaking. And then he got so sick of it. He like put it on a flatbed and sent it to Chicago and then like just bought a Porsche the next day because there was a dealership in town kind of thing. You couldn't get that one. At least if it breaks, he can go to the dealership. So I never put anything past rich kids mentality. 
That's insane. I can't I can't even believe that. Must be nice. Must be nice. Actually, maybe not. Maybe it just ruins you mentally, and it's just like the worst thing possible you could do for somebody. Yeah, I mean, honestly, a Z-Pack's backpack is like a Ferrari to me at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? It's yeah. to, it's, it, You see some of these stuff out on trail, and you're like, oh, man, that dude is so light. Yeah. It's so funny. We pay so much money to carry less stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't help but think about, like, the difference in experience, um, like, having such a light pack is. Oh, I mean, like... The fact that, so I, I left and I think I was at around 15 pounds base because when I measure, measured with full food and water, by the way, way too much food at the start I had. Um, rookie mistake that everyone makes. Uh, yeah, I think everybody makes um, a mistake. I was, you know, at like 20, 28 pounds, I want to say. That's pretty great was, though to be starting. Yeah, starting and, and it's from all those like crazy hours of research that I knew that like the best way to succeed is to work, you know, less hard, really. I mean, it is, I mean, you can kill yourself out there, but you know, not necessarily conducive to accomplishing this far-fetched goal. You can do it. There are strong guys. I know guys who were out there hiking with 30, 40 pounds and man, they were killing it. I was not that strong. I was a soft office worker. So I needed to set myself up in a position to succeed which meant buying ultralight gear and almost in, you know, almost ex- entirely in my life, I have a, um, kind of a, an ideal of buy once, cry once. So that's where all that's, all that research comes in, you know, buy something worthwhile that's going to survive. That's going to be the best tool for the implement. If it means having less stuff and saving for it, whatever that is, um, do that because it's, it's going to be more expensive you for you to make mistakes along the way and you know let's say buy a cheap cheaper pack like a you know let's say you start out one of one of those big like osprey packs or something and then you realize oh man i have too much stuff then you got to figure out how to like get a new pack and then maybe that's going to be you know 300 bucks and then you're going to try to have to sell the old one and you know you just lose money that way and i always had the mentality of like just buy the right thing from the start which kind of worked out because I didn't really buy anything new. I didn't replace anything. I picked up some extra stuff, but I didn't really have to replace any of my gear. I feel like I needed to hear that. I like that buy once, cry once. Yeah. Because I'm totally the type of person that just tries to like pinch every penny and get the cheapest thing that you know will will get the job done. Um, right. And I think that works. You know, when it comes to starting a hobby and you're at home and you know you shouldn't be a humongous barrier to entry you don't need the ferrari of backpacks if you're going to go out and hike a trail nearby you know you're going to go out for a weekend i think it's more important to get out there but if you're going to set yourself the goal of this impossible task then you really got to start considering some things you know I can already see that getting me into trouble, like <laughs> talking myself into like an expensive purchase. Like, oh, oh dude, buy once, talk- buy once, it'll be fine. <laughs> you're talking to the wrong guy when it comes to that. Like, I'm <laughs> 100% there. Like, my friends always just make fun of me because, like, I like collect watches and stuff, and they're just like, "Are you like, what's wrong with you? Why are you spending all this money?" And it's like, "Well, I love it, and like, I really want a nice watch, and you know." So, it's it's not a fiscally smart thing to do, but sometimes it can save you money in the long run. Well, so were you upset when you had to part with your vet? 
Oh man, it was bad. Um, I, I I named my vet. Her name was Jolene. Um, so all all vets are built in Bowling Green, uh, Kentucky. So I thought, like, man, I really need like a southern. This is another weird like lightning bolt moment. I need like a southern name for it. So I was tossing around a couple names, and I'm listening to um, XM radio and Willie Nelson's. It's like Willie Nelson's Outlaw Country Station or whatever. And uh, Dolly Parton Jolene comes on. I'm like, oh, my God, that's perfect. That's literally the perfect, like, southern girl's name for my car. So, yeah, I mean, it was – I was kind of an addict to speed a little bit, you know, pre-trail. Um, probably not a good thing considering my you know, brother passed away in a car accident, which is why I kind of – it didn't feel as bad to get rid of it because it was like, you know, uh, you know – how can I drive at 150 miles an hour on the road, you know, in some like abandoned road or on the racetrack or something when like, you know, this horrible thing happened in my family. And I just had a lot of weird guilt about it. So letting it go certainly felt bad. Um, it was like, obviously, the pr- my pride and joy. You know, I'm out there every weekend waxing it and washing it and all that kind of stuff. And I love, you know, growing up, I was always a humongous um, car fan, like just... I mean, kind of like a rain man, like we would be on road trips and I could like tell what car it was based on the headlights or taillights at night kind of thing. So it was always a dream of mine to own a sports car and, you know, a brand, you know, 2007 Corvette Z06, 500 horsepower. I just go out there and like burn up the streets kind of thing. Um, So it was sad to see it go. But, you know, if anything, this through hike has taught me like you are not your possessions. You are not what you own. You know, you are your experiences. So, you know, if you're talking about how my mentality has changed, you know, uh, now I want to invest in experiences more than stuff. Gotcha. That totally makes sense. What were you hoping to get out of this hike? It was passing the Got the whole idea started. Um, yeah. But what, yeah, what did you think you'd get out of this? I think the main thing that I would get out of it was completing something truly hard. So, I mean, the one thing I that really struck me is that I'd never really done anything hard in my life. Now, people would look at me and they'd you know, see what I've done and be like, what are you talking about? Going to college is hard. Yeah, going to college, I got into a you know, very prestigious school and I studied molecular biology. And when people sit, hear that, they're like, oh, that must have been hard. And it's like... Well, I mean, not really. It was difficult, certainly, but it wasn't so challenging. You know, I want to come from a place of like self-examination and understand that I had a lot of privilege. I have a very supported family that supported my education. I was from a very young age. I was, you know, conditioned to perform academically and all those kind of things. And so college and, you know, grad school for me was not as difficult because I didn't have a lot of the barriers that other people had. You know, I didn't have to work three jobs. I didn't have to take care of a kid. I didn't have to do all these kind of things. So college, when people see and they hear about it, they're like, oh, that must have been hard. Not really. Now, this was going to be truly hard. Here I am, just fat, out of shape, like total hiking novice. And I'm trying to do this thing that's such a massive goal. And then that truly became like my driving thing is like, I need to finish this because, you know, I've heard a lot of people, especially when talking about the ACT and they say growth comes at the edge of discomfort, right? So I just needed to do this because I needed to prove to myself that I could do it like my brother did a lot of things in his life. And, you know, I could complete something truly difficult. Yeah, that's totally understandable. 
How did you get your trail name? So I actually got it really early on. And when I first gotten it, it was not my favorite. So, um, you know, a couple days in, I think, maybe two, three days in is Gooch Mountain Shelter. Um, and I'd reached Gooch Mountain. There were a great group of people there. And there were these two older guys there. One was um, something big and the other one was his friend Raggedy Crow. And everyone's like, oh, hey, do you got a trail name? I was like, no, not really. And everyone's talking. And these guys were like, you know, what, why, why do you have your trail name? And I think Raggedy Crow is because he, he's kind of an older guy and he's a little raggedy. He's got a beard and, you know, um, maybe like a, a crow-like face. I have no idea, but he, his thing. But something big is this guy um, named Tony Stoddard. And you, you can look it up online um and he's the ceo of something called sophia's fund and sophia's fund is a pediatric cancer um charity now something big's son cole had passed away um young son i think he was five or six when he had passed away and one of his last things he had sent to said to his dad was you need to do something big and so he you know took my story in you know very empathetically and all those kind of things and I met him, you know, a couple days down trail again. I think it was Unicoi Gap or something like that. And he's like, hey, man, I've got a trail name for you. And I was like, oh, OK, what is it? And, he's t and he tells me two trails. And I was like, oh, uh, two trails. What does that mean? And he's like, well, you've got two trails to hike. You've got one for yourself and one for your brother. And that really, I mean, like really hit home, like really, hit really close to the heart. And I wasn't sure that I liked it because you know, whenever you tell somebody, hey, what's your trail name? Uh, it's two trails. They're like, oh, where'd you get that from? And then it comes out this humongous story. It's very painful to retell it every time, obviously. Um, so I didn't really like it at the start. But the further I got down the trail, the more I realized it was exactly what I needed because I could tell my brother's story and it really helped me, you know, confronting that and not being I, I have a tendency to kind of clam up about you know personal things and if I'm having struggles I keep I internalize it more than I lean on others for strength so that forced me to tell that story and that forced me to go out there and confront this loss like almost every time and so by the end of the trail I mean I knew it wasn't that I was given two trails I was two trails wow that's amazing I got chills twice, <laughs> one from something big to name and then one from him giving you yours. Yeah, I mean, I'm friends with him on Facebook and you can see him every day just hitting the road, trying to drum up support, you know, hit, you know, talking to congressmen, talking to, you know, Senate people, talking to sports teams. He gets like the he's in he's based in Massachusetts. He gets like the Bruins to light up yellow for, you know, pediatric cancer and stuff. And it's like, man, this guy is out here killing it for this promise that he made to his son so amazing totally inspiring guy that's amazing i have to look that up and uh if you can yeah, yeah give me some info on that and i'll, and I'll link sure. it in the show notes so everyone can check that out yep but it sounds like having that name forced you to be open like sooner rather than later and um if you've heard any other episodes uh we've touched on it a few times that being on the trail like you're just so much more open with the, the people that you encounter because um it, there's just something about the shared experience and the shared struggle that everyone's going through out there yeah that people are just they're just more open to one another uh and, more quickly than you know you would open up to someone 
in day to day life. And it's, the, where, yeah. So I was gonna say the where it the the whole hiking like through hiker companionship all those kind of things. What it really reminded me of is when you're on a sports team when you're a kid and you've got this shared goal and you're out there in the summer doing two days or whatever it is just killing yourself in the heat but you're all in it together and that bonds a team quickly and that same thing I think applies to through hikers it puts you you're all in the mud and I'm you know I don't want to speak from a a place of ignorance but from what I'd heard with my brother and how difficult basic training is and how difficult you know it is out there those same relationships also form in the military where you're all just in the suck together and you need to like either band together or you're all going to fail. And that's kind of the way through hiking is to me. It's just like you're all in this massive suck and the only way to get out of it is to lean on each other. Yeah, that's definitely a good analogy. So how was it going through the Smokies knowing that that's the stretch of trail that you had planned to hike with your brother that you will not get to do? Yeah, I mean, certainly emotional. By that time, I had met my first kind of trail fam. Um, I'd met them around the NOC. So we were going through the Smokies together. And then, you know, it was 80, 80 plus degrees in Georgia when we left. By the time we hit the Smokies, it was like snowstorms. Like, it was so bad. We got to the Smokies, actually. And so in 17, um, there was like a humongous windstorm that went through and like, blew down a ton of stuff and there were people getting evac from davenport gap and stuff there was like snowstorms so we'd like hit there hit the smokies like right afterwards so you know we're coming through going up molly's ridge it's like hot but then when we're there it starts like snowing and then it's like miserable for the next couple days we like go into newfound gap and we're just like drowned rats it's just like freezing rain and we're just like oh my god please let me just get um, luckily, you know, all that travel I had done for work, I had so many accumulated hotel points that like, I just went on my phone, somehow got signal at newfound gap and like booked a hotel room on points down in Gatlinburg. So, you know, it, it was really, it was a hard hike. I was like, Oh my gosh, I thought Georgia was hard. What is going on? These are, these mountains are no joke. Clingman's was like, you know, I got up there. I didn't really see anything. It was just like fog and freezing rain. It was horrible. How did you feel about Gatlinburg? It was this weird, I mean, it was such a weird, it's like, it's like Appalachian Vegas or something. You come in, I remember coming, we just came in and went to Five Guys and destroyed some food. Like literally, you know, it was like the most amount of patties you can have on a burger. And like, you know, normally if you've ever been to Five Guys, like the smallest fry is enough for two people. We like each bought like the large fry, which is like a family size amount of fries and like ate it. It felt so good. And then like the hotel had like a hot tub and we went to the whatever, the Walgreens and got beer. And it was like, oh, man, we needed that because coming out of that snow, not feeling it, not feeling the AT at that point. <laughs> Did you feel like there were any like special moments when you're on the trail? that you had felt like connected to your brother. I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to say like, uh, you mentioned that you're not like super religious or whatever, but just like, was there any moments where you're just like, yeah, like I, I can feel that, uh, Johan is like here. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things I did was carry his dog tags around my neck. So almost every time I was struggling, I would like pull out his tags 
from under my shirt and just like touch it to my forehead. And I don't know what it was. I don't, you know, psychosomatic or whatever it was, but just doing that act every time I was struggling, I felt like a wash of strength go into me each time. And like, you know, a religious person might say, Hey, that's God, that's your brother, whatever it was. A non-religious person might say, you know, that was just your, your mental fortitude galvanizing itself. And like, Whatever it was, like, I really felt connected to him the most in times of struggle, I would say. You know, when you're having fun on the AT, it's great. It's a blast. It's the time of your life. But in the the trail is not that, you know. Obviously, anyone who's through hiked any trail knows that. And it's in those hard times um, that you really find the measure of yourself. Totally. And it feels like the longer that you're away from the hike like now that you know we've completed it it feels like you forget about all the hard parts and you just remember all the good ones oh man completely i you know don't remember some of these totally brutal days you had and you're just like oh i remember that time we like walked into town and there's that trail magic and that was so great and it's like you're just oh man do you remember that time you like almost died in the whites you know whatever it was (laughs) so speaking of trail magic do you remember any like really awesome trail magics. Yeah. So one thing is, I don't know if this counts as trail magic. So I met a guy in Damascus, Ragnar and, and a whole group of people actually, but Ragnar is who I finished with in Damascus. We started hiking and we didn't finish until we finished in Harper's Ferry. So I, I did a flip flop. So we got to Harper's and then he's from Greenwood Lake in New York. So, you know, his parents came down, helped us flip when we were around their town and stuff, if we were having a really terrible day, they would come pick us up at a gap and let us sleep in their place overnight kind of thing, stick us back out on trail, whatever it was. Um, so if that counts as trail magic, um, definitely that. I mean, they were, Ragnar's parents are amazing and all props to them for putting up with a bunch of smelly, dirty hikers. Um, but the first trail magic I ever got was what really like, you know, brought, it was that magic moment. And so I think it was... I can't remember the mountain's name, but I do remember it's called Horse Gap. I think it's Sassafras early, early on in Georgia. And so I'm sitting there and, you know, water's kind of thin. It's pretty hot. Um, and I knew the next water source was over the mountain. And so I'm looking at my my food and my water. I'm about to have lunch and I've got like a liter of water left. Now, I'm still on like my first thing of food. So I'm I've got a tortilla and like peanut butter and honey. And if any through hiker has ever eaten that, you know how thirsty you get when you eat that. So I'm just now doing this like mental calculation of like how much water can I drink? Because I need some for the climb. But at the same time, this tortilla roll up is like sticking in my mouth. I can barely force it down. And I was like, screw it. I just drank all my water. I'm like, whatever. I'm just going to climb this mountain dry. And then I'm sitting there just kind of like, you know, waiting. And these guys in an SUV come blazing around the corner and they kind of like pull up and they're like, hey, um, oh, what, what's up, dude? Are you a through hiker? I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, we just finished our weekend hike and like, um, do you want some water? And I was like, oh, my God, where is this scent from? This is trail magic. I never understood the concept, but it was like this is truly magic. Like this water showed up when I so desperately needed it. So I was like, Hey man, slam the rest of my water, poured all their water into my bottles, then slammed a couple more waters, you know, cameling with them. And I was like, dude, you guys don't know this, but you literally just saved my day. Cause it was going to be a real miserable day. Otherwise. 
Yep, that's definitely one of the most awesome things about the trail is that things just kind of fall into your lap when right when you need them the most. It was amazing, and 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 that was just the first instance. Things like that happen all the way down the trail, and you know when they say, you know, when people talk about trail magic and you know people being grumpy, like, oh man, I didn't get there in time for the hamburger cookout or whatever it was. Like, hey man, you didn't need the hamburger cook cookout, but the trail magic will show up when you really need it. Right, totally. Like you shouldn't go out there expecting anything. Right. The whole thing is that you know, you don't. People don't need to be doing that for us hikers, and it's just so amazing that they do. Oh, yeah, and when I hear stories about, like, people doing water caches on the PCT and stuff for hikers, it's like, man, you just, if there's one way, if, if regular life makes you feel like humanity is lost, get out on a trail, and you will find that the kindness of complete strangers is almost inexhaustible in the world. Totally, totally. I can't, you know, reinforce that enough because it, totally reinforced my faith in humanity uh all the tra trail angels like there was so much more trail magic than i could have ever imagined and uh each yeah, one I, just like such great I nice kind people i genuinely wish i lived next to the at because i would be out there and through hiker season um i would be out there doing trail magic and you know if any of you prospective through hikers going through greenwood lake i'm pretty sure ragnar is going to be at you know that gap there and he'll he'll probably you know give you a hitch or something like that i don't know but if you see a kind of a, a shaved not shaved but buzzed headed guy with a big blonde beard um that's him you know and he's he's always like looking out for hikers um and the funny thing is now his parents even look out for hikers and give up give hitches and stuff yeah that's awesome i've heard about that in a few instances and that's actually how a lot of trail angels get connected to the trail was like through a family member. You know, if, if they didn't hike it themselves or something mm -hmm. like that, um, it's just like, it's infectious. It really is. I mean, you feel so good doing it. And, and honestly, like the investment can be quite large, you know, if you're doing one of these massive hiker feeds kind of thing. But, you know, I, I remember coming up to a cooler that just had a few like iced Cokes in it or whatever it was. And, it, you know. 48 cents worth of coke literally changed my day kind of thing so it doesn't take a lot of money even if it's just going out there leaving jugs of water whatever it is any amount of help that you could provide a hiker to you might seem like a small thing but to them is massive completely yeah uh, a cooler on the side of a trail is like equivalent to a treasure chest <laughs> you know like for a yeah. hiker yeah um but can you tell me about your flip-flop and how that experience was yeah so one of the things you know given that I was so out of shape is that I'm kind of behind schedule at this point like we're doing decent miles you know by the time I'd gotten to Damascus I was probably doing you know 12 to 15 plus a day like I think I would had some big days in there and some flatter portions where I'd touched 20 almost but you know, going through Virginia, the Virginia blues really hit like it is deep summer. It's June and July in Virginia. And I am, you know, kind of a heavier dude. And so is Ragnar. And so we had formed this like kind of the, the funny name for our, our hiking you know, group was the HBHC, the, the Husky Boys Hiking Club. <laughs> um, so we're in Virginia and it, it's just beating hot. It's so humid. It's so hot in midsummer that like we're just struggling i mean real real bad and so at this point we're hiking the majority of the time at night like we would you know 
hike from we try to hike from like seven o'clock when the heat kind of dies down to like two in the morning and kind of wake up and try to do some like morning hiking and then take the whole like middle part of the day off i had like heat rash basically from like mid thigh all the way to my ankles you know and it didn't leave i mean there's nothing you can do for heat rash besides like ac and like you know cool dry air kind of thing and keeping it dry so not an option on trail. So I basically am just covered in heat rash. Um, so we're in Virginia and I'm just like, hey, man, we're both behind schedule. We're going to, you know, based on even after we had started pushing bigger miles, you know, we're still we're talking an October finish date in Kat- at Katahdin. And like eh, we've heard some really sketchy things about that area up at that time of year. So it's like, why don't we just flip flop and why don't we just like I want to finish Finishing is more important than finishing Nobo to me. Um, I'm not a purist, you know. There were some sections that I'd skipped, like Kinsman Notch, when we were coming back down south. There was, like, a random fire, I think, from, like, a meteor or something that had struck. And, like, so we had cut those miles off because they closed the section. So in no way I'm going to say that my hike was a purist hike. There were parts, certain little parts that I had missed. So, you know, if that's out of the gate, like whatever, dude, let's just flip flop. I'm not going to be some weird, you know, nobo purist. So, and when we got into Maine, man, what an upgrade from, from Virginia, you know, like the weather was cooler. We didn't have to go through the Pennsylvania rocks in the super hot, dry part of the, you know, year, all that kind of stuff. Best decision I ever made, made was to flip flop. And honestly, if other through hikers are listening, you know, and if you really don't mind doing it, start at Harper's. Just start going north from Harper's. That's like a great way to do the trail. I mean, totally underrated. I think the flip flop is, you know, not the pure, you know, not that purest experience. But you know, what's important to you? Figure out what's important to you. And if it's completing, then a flip flop's a great way. And especially for people who don't like a ton of. Um, a ton of hikers around them. I think the flip-flop is great because, you know, starting deep in that Nobo bubble like I did, like, it kind of sucks. There's, like, you know, the first couple... It's awesome from from an interaction, from the hikers you meet and all that kind of stuff. But that's also the flip side of that coin is, like, you know, I'd roll up to shelters and literally the privy is full. I remember one privy, somehow the cone had exceeded the the toilet seat like i don't know how that is possible people are crouching on this it's like dude the woods are just open just go out there like you know so so, there are some downsides of starting in that nobo bubble so how did you deal with the transition of going from tons of people in the bubble to switching um did you feel like the like a community communal shift um going sobo and and did like were you hiking at the same time as other sobos yeah, so we flipped at the end of July. I think we got to Harper's around like July 20th, I want to say, something like that. I can't remember exactly. But anyways, so we got to Harper's, and then Ragnar's um, folks came and picked us up and took us up to Greenwood Lake. And then we had met up with some friends at, we had kind of like a hiker reunion. This is um, probably my best memory on trail, is we had this awesome hiker reunion from some friends who had aquablazed Shenandoah. And so they got like way ahead of us and we couldn't catch up because they were like 100 miles ahead of us kind of thing. And so when we flipped, they, you know, some of them were quitting, some of them, whatever. They all hopped up and we all like spent like four days in at Ragnar's house, like camped in his yard, like just enjoying each other. And, you know, this awesome hiker reunion. 
Um, so then after that, we left. They dropped us off in Maine. Um, it we I flipped with let's see, one two, four people. Um, and two two had gone home for something and were coming back. So we all met up up in Maine. And the I mean the flip was great. Like the only problem was you know obviously Maine and New Hampshire are much colder. So I had like sent home a lot of my like cold weather stuff. So. I, my mom had sent me back my like down quilt for for Maine, and I had to go to the post office. But unfortunately, like we were we were summiting Katahdin uh, on the eclipse, so you know that massive like eclipse thing that was going on last year. Yeah. Um. So they had all left on the like six a.m. shuttle from the AT Lodge to go up to uh, the AT Lodge in Millinocket to go to um, Baxter. And got, they got in early. Then I had to go to the post office. Post office only opened at like eight o'clock. Had to flip my gear, send the old stuff home, I and mean, send my you know warm weather stuff home. Pick up all my cooler weather stuff, and then I hitched to Baxter. And they're like, "Yeah, dude, there's no way you're getting in. What's wrong with you? Like, first of all, show up at like six in the morning when everyone else does. Secondly, it's the eclipse. We stopped letting people in at like seven in the morning. So I was like, "Oh my gosh, my friends are hiking Katahdin right now, and I am so screwed." So I go back to the AT Lodge and have to spend another day. Go out the next day, and I we had made the plan that they were going to wait for me at Abel Bridge. So I do Katahdin, then come down, then do all the way back to Abel Bridge, and they I get to Abel Bridge at night, and it's just like I am just so beat. Like obviously had hiked Katahdin, then another, like, I don't know, whatever it is, 10 miles back to Abel Bridge, and I'm just, like, thrashed at this point. I think I looked, my phone was, it said I had done, like, 90,000 steps that day or something, something ridiculous like that. Wow. So anyways, they leave this note, and they're, like, on, on Abel Bridge, they had, like, wedged it into a crack, and they're, like, hey, two trails, we're up ahead a little bit on the left. And I was like, oh, sweet. All right. So I'm just going to go there and I'm going to see them reunite with my friends. So then I, you know, I got this full load of food for the 100 mile wilderness and stuff. And, you know, I'm just like dying. Uh, actually, I had slacked Katahdin. So luckily I didn't carry all that junk up with me. Um, I left it at the whatever the ranger station and then just carried a day pack up and back. But the rest of those miles I had to do with all my stuff, you know, obviously a lot of food and all that kind of stuff. So I get in, I'm walking, it's pitch black. It's like raining at this point. And I'm like, oh my God, where are my friends? And then I saw one flash of light off in the distance. And I thought maybe, I was so close to the edge that I thought maybe that was like a light from a headlight or something and not a headlamp. Cause they were kind of, you know, a hundred feet off into the, into the woods. And I totally missed them. So I'm just miserable. It's like 1130 midnight at this point. I've been hiking literally since six in the morning that day. And I'm just like, there's a shelter three miles into the 100 mile wilderness. I'm just going to go there. And I was just so angry. And I like angry hiked my way <laughs> past like some down trees and stuff. Angry hiked my way to the shelter, crashed out at like two in the morning there. I wake up the next day and it just like feels like a truck hit me. I mean, it's the the sorest I was ever on trail, much worse than even the, and I, you know, I had my trail legs. I had a thousand miles in at this point, you know, but I was thrashed on this day. And so I'm just lying. And it was, uh, that shelter was one of these main baseball bat shelters. There's only a few of them in Maine, I think like 10 or something like that. So I'm on this lumpy baseball bat shelter and I'm just like, oh God, this is the worst. And so then I just like sleep slash struggle through the morning until they catch up with me. So luckily they link up with me and we, you know, go through the hundred miles together. 
under my wilderness together. That's an insane day because Katahdin <laughs> alone is no joke. Yeah, I mean, it was totally ridiculous. I, you know, and I'm there and I'm thinking like, oh man, what if I could just like, let me just get a hitch down to the down to the golden road or whatever. And like, unfortunately, I finished Katahdin and it's like 6.30, everyone's cleared out. There's no hitches, so I just got to walk. Like, man, that was a miserable day. But I mean, if, if people were to ask me like, oh, what's, what's something that you're proud of? It's like, hey man, I, I busted like 20 plus, including Katahdin. Like that's a, that's, that's a hell of a day. Yeah, that's wild. Did you have any time at the top to soak it in? Um, so it was like a beautiful day going up. As soon as I hit the tablelands, like there's just a cloud perched on Katahdin and it's windy and it's rainy and it's cold. So I like do the rest of the tablelands, get up to the summit. I don't know anybody there. There's all these hikers finishing Nobo and they're just like, yeah, this is the best. What? And I, I don't want to steal from them because I feel like this fraud, this flip-flop yeah. fraud. You know, I don't want to steal from them. They completed this amazing journey, and I'm like a thousand miles in. I'm just a chump. So I just like took my picture. I had somebody take my picture, like two little pics. That's all I have, really. And then it's just like on the way back down, time to go. Crazy. So I didn't really have that big Katahdin moment that everyone has, but it's not a big deal to me, to be honest. Well, so was it climactic when you ended in Harper's Ferry? It was very, yeah, I would say it was not climactic, but it was emotional. I had those, I think the feelings that a lot of people feel on Katahdin, I was feeling in Harper's. Gotcha. Like, yeah, you felt like it was completed. and Yeah, but it's, it doesn't have that grand finish like finishing on Katahdin is. It's more I like don't know. a finish line rather than... Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know how how Sobos feel. Like, when you finish on spring on this, like, hill, pretty much. You know what I mean? Like, after you've done all this crazy stuff, like, how does it feel to spring feel um, finish on Springer? I don't know. But really, it doesn't matter because, you know, the goal was not that one mountain. The goal was this entire thing that led you there. So um, the sense of accomplishment was certainly there. I just didn't have that big finish. Did you uh, journal along the way? Um, not really. So I thought I would, and, you know, going back to what we were saying, like I tried to get these stories about my brother, blah, all those things kind of like fell by the wayside, and I was very just kind of personal about my internal thoughts. Uh, I did journal in that um, I used my Instagram account to just keep people aware of where I was, what I was climbing, look, what are these cool sites that I'm seeing? How's the adventure going? But it, like my true, you know, like internal thoughts and you know all those kind of things. No, didn't. Um, that was more of just every day, just kind of like think a little bit, be mindful about those kind of things. Gotcha. Um, did you like listen to anything? Did you have headphones while you're hiking? Yeah, I mean, so I was. Maybe this is not good, and I think a lot of wilderness purists would, you know, naysay it. But I am a, you know, bit, you know, I don't know if you could figure this out from based on all, all the research I did, but I'm like a basically a bottomless hole of information. So um, when it came to like hiking, I was always listening to an audiobook or a podcast or, you know, something, just anything to just like, you know, when you're out in the woods, you're not you're learning things you're learning about yourself and nature and all those kind of things but you're not consuming like academic kind of information so i really needed to keep my mind busy from the monotony of hiking with um with you know podcasts and audiobooks and stuff think like information just give me that 
just feed me information to keep me happy kind of thing. Um, and then also I love like music. So, you know, I always had like perfect playlists for like, there's like a rap uphill playlist. There's like a metal uphill playlist. There's, you know, all kinds of stuff. There's like cool, like I had a bluegrass, like Americana playlist for just like moseying on through the woods kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, I had tons of, tons of music and stuff. Spotify premium, everyone get it. Download your playlists onto your phone. It's great. <laughs> Are there any audiobooks or podcasts that you would recommend? Um, I mean, I love like science podcasts and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm a big like nerd. So one of the things that actually uh, I love fantasy books and stuff and sci-fi. So and my brother shared that, too. So there's a there's a book series called The Wheel of Time that we had picked up when we were kids and, you know, it was like it, it was kind of like um, it was the Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones. It's like a 13 book series. Each book is like a thousand page paperback. They're enormous. So I literally like listened to that a lot of the way. I mean, those books plus the podcasts. I mean, I didn't really need anything else for the entire journey because like we're talking 40 plus hours of audiobook per book or something like that. So, I mean, it was days and days and days and weeks worth of stuff to listen to wow can you give me a just a brief summary of the plot or just like oh yeah so it's you know it's a very like uh, they would call it like you know high fantasy or whatever it's you know uh, a, a lowly stable boy discovers these powers and like and has to fight with the devil at the end of the series kind of thing you know you know it's this like it's this kind of thing. And there's like a lot of like, it, it actually worked really well for through hiking because, you know, a lot of the journey is like, oh, they're on this boring stretch where they have to take, it's like Lord of the Rings, right? You got to like take a horse and you got to walk somewhere. And there's all these like, you know, it's like a very journey focused um, book series. And, and the whole format of fantasy is focused to that, like where you go from like the base level and then you level up all the way through the book series and at the end you're this super powerful person um I, you know kind of harry potter style or whatever it is and i kind of felt that way about through hiking i was like man i was just this terrible hiker at the start and now you know going through all these like you know all these trials and tribulations and i come out at the end and you know i'm like oh and i'm a level 20 instead of a level one whatever it is so it actually worked really well with the hike yeah i'm sure it kept you occupied for like a long time yeah, Hope except the one. Yeah, certainly. But I, so I broke my phone twice. And I'm not very good with keeping electronics safe. So the first time was in Damascus. I'm at Trail Days, and at Trail Day 17. There's like right during the hiker parade, you know, there's this everyone's shooting water at you, blah blah. blah. And then as we're walking back after the parade, this torrential downpour, like a huge summer storm, comes through. And just dumps rain onto us. And I had had my iPhone in this like otter box. I thought it was safe. I get to my tent and pull it out, and there's there it is, dead as a doornail. Um, so actually, this is all kind of cor- corresponded at a, at a weird time. So trail days, I was feeling uh, this weird numbness in my foot, like really bad. Um, and I didn't actually walk into trail days. So we got had gotten to hot springs by then with my trail fam, and then we like shuttled up to trail days. And then shuttled back. And so one of the guys I had met early on in the trail who was faster than me, Par 3, he's a ex-PCT hiker. 
I met him at Trail Days, and I was like, oh, dude, my feet, I can't even feel my toes. I don't know what's going on. And he's like, oh, I know what it is. It's something called Morton's Neuroma. So then I'm there, like, Googling Morton's Neuroma, and it's basically what happens is, like, a nerve in the front of your foot gets pinched, and then you start losing feeling in your toes. So I knew, and then I read the, like, prognosis on it, and they're like, if you keep doing whatever it is, uh, you're just going to damage that nerve and then permanently lose feeling in your toes. And I was like, oh, boy. Is this going to end my hike? So we shuttle back to Hot Springs. My trail fam takes off. I then, once again, using those uh, hotel points that I had accrued through my long uh, travel career, book a hotel room in Asheville for like four or five days. And then my parents are coming in for the first time. They're going to meet me back on trail kind of thing and hike with me for a day or two. Um, and so par three tells me about the Morton's neuroma. I figure out how to fix my foot. I start lacing my shoes at the toe much looser and eventually switch shoes to um, some really wide New Balances, 4E shoes, like double extra wide shoes. And that basically solved it. So the, if you're going to talk about what my low was on the trail, it was having to get off trail and thinking my hike was going to end. And I'm only at Hot Springs. I'm like 300 miles and I, I'm literally like you know, devastated that I can't, I can't even make it past North Carolina. What's wrong with me? But luckily got off trail, rested my foot, changed my shoes, all that kind of stuff. Got a new phone, um, all that kind of stuff. And then the second time I broke my phone was in the hundred mile wilderness. I'm sitting in one of these shelters and I, I can't even remember the name of it, but it was, I was literally the cold Creek, maybe something like that. I'm this, my phone is set down on the like shelter floor and somehow it gets knocked off and falls, you know, two feet into the, um, in, onto the floor of the shelter. And this is one of those, like, porcupine fence shelters in Maine where it has the, like, weird front section to, like, block critters from getting in and then, like, kind of a gap and then the shelter starts. So it had fallen literally perfectly face down onto the sharp rocks and, like, cracked the screen. And I'm in the 100-mile wilderness and I just start cursing like the sky. And I was just so, so mad and frustrated, all that kind of stuff. And I like grab all, I'm like, what are these sharp rocks doing inside the shelter? I start grabbing them and like throwing them out of the shelter. I'm just like, why are these even here? What is going on? Like, am I taking crazy pills? Um, and then, and then I just didn't have a phone for like a long time. Because, like, it was this whole, like, thing with Verizon Insurance, and I had to get a new phone, and they only should. So, long story short, I only get the phone, like, three weeks later in, uh, uh, I can't remember what town in Maine. But uh, that was the only time I really read a book on trail was after that. Because I had nothing else to do. You know, you get to camp, and everyone else has got their phones and listening to stuff or whatever. And I'm just sitting there like a, you know, bump on a log. So, I, I got a book at... Um, in Monson at, uh, at the, um, Shaw's hiker hostel, my favorite hostel on trail, pretty much. Um, great people, poet and hippie chick there, amazing hosts, um, picked up a book there. One that I'd read years ago, it was, it's called hyperspace by Michio Kaku. And it's about like, um, string theory and like particle physics and all that kind of stuff. And I'm total nerd. So once again, luckily fortuitously picked up this book and it kept me entertained all the way till I got my new phone pretty much. There you go. So, um, why was that your favorite hostel? I mean, just first of all, coming out of the hundred mile wilderness, you're just like so thrashed up from it 
that like you know you come and they give you this beer or coke or whatever you want when you first get there and there's this amazing breakfast that they do every day that is totally worth it um and just poet and hippie chick just the two most welcoming now not that other hostels weren't welcoming there's a lot of good hostels on trail woods hole and um the one in hampton tennessee i can't remember its name right now but a lot of great hostels but those those two by far made Shaw's my number one hostel on trail. Just great people. What was the favorite town that you stopped in? Um, definitely Greenwood Lake because Ragnar's from there. So, I mean, he had had some friends come hike with them, with us. And so I'd gotten to know his friends and, you know, his parents took us out on their pontoon boat on the lake. And like, it was the hiker reunion, all of those things combined and made Greenwood Lake my favorite place on trail. Favorite town. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, I didn't say before, but definitely counts as trail magic where his parents come, come along. Yeah. I mean, lifesavers totally. Yeah. Can you walk us through what your meals were like day to day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner on trail? Yeah, um, not healthy. I'll tell you that much. I'm not a very, was not a very healthy eater on trail. So breakfast, not really a big fan of like a hot breakfast. Too much work. Um, I was pretty lazy. So it would be like a pop tart or granola bar or something. And eventually, you just get so tired of everything. Like, got tired of Cliff bars. Got tired of Luna bars. Got tired of Nature Valley bars. Like got tired of pop tarts you know but you just kind of like cycle through all of them try not to buy the same thing every every resupply so basically bars in the morning um bars and trail mix and stuff i really like chex mix that's like my favorite snack i know a lot of hikers love potato chips but i'm more of a chex mix guy um so all that through lunch then lunch i would make um i don't really i got really tired of tortillas very quickly so that uh I started buying when I could. Um, the, there's a, I can't remember who makes it, but there's like these bagel fins that are basically like little sandwich bagel kind of things. And I would put like summer sausage, cheese, spam, whatever in there and just kind of eat that for lunch. And then dinner, this is the funny thing, is like I am a very keen home cook, like very interested in food science, very interested in cooking, love cooking at home. Um, if ever anyone looks at my Instagram, they'll see how much I love food. Um, every night, pretty much for dinner, almost without fail, I ate ramen. Um, and I hate—I don't really like the cheap ramen you can get in stores, but luckily, Amazon Prime exists, and I would send myself like good Asian ramen from Amazon to like my supply drops. And that's the only thing I ever really dropped. Dropped those and um, these noon electrolyte tablets that I used a lot. Um, cause I hated like Mio water. Um, and I would get that. And then, uh, pretty much every night I ate either spam or summer sausage diced up, put into the ramen, then ramen with the flavor packets. And then I would augment it with like some cheese or butter if I could, if it was cold enough to hike with butter. Um, and then like even down South, like I was picking ramps, you know, cause ramp season is like in the spring and it's all along the Appalachian mountains. So I would just like see ramps during the day and cut them up and then put them in my ramen at night kind of thing. And everyone was like making fun of me for being like this gourmet hiker, but you know, food is one of my great pleasures in life. And, um, 
you know, every little thing out there, you know, there's some people who are definitely food as fuel. Um, I'm not one of them. I'm a food as uh, enjoyment kind of person. So every night, some kind of ramen noodles. Um, if you're looking for stuff on Amazon for your hike, Shin Ramyun is excellent. They make some spicy ramen. And then Indomie noodles is also really good. And you can get them in like 10 packs kind of thing. So it's perfect. Like the exact size you need for like um, a, you know, supply drop pretty much. I love ramen, so I might have to check those out. Check them out. Like, it's perfect. Like, start trying different flavors. You have an Asian market in your town. Go to it. Buy a bunch of flavors. Take it out on weekend trips. See what you like. It's to- totally my favorite meal on trail by far. And I was like a – I was a um, – I was a – I would do like meal in a bag kind of stuff. So I, I would like portion it into Ziploc bags and then like heat up water. I never really like cleaning, you know, because you have to like, if you're being really leave no trace, you got to scrub it out and then dump the gray water in a particular area. You're not supposed to contaminate water sources, cleaning stuff, that kind of thing. So I don't really like doing that. So I would just boil the water in the bag uh, and people. So I have like a technique for eating the ramen that I developed on trail. So I'd boil the water. Put uh, while the water is boiling, dice up all my fixins for the ramen, whether you know it's a summer sausage or the spam or any vegetables or anything I could get a hold of. Not too many vegetables, I'll be honest. But uh, I do that, put it into the Ziploc bag, my favorite uh, hefty brand freezer bags with a slide lock. Those are the most durable, they never really bust open. Um, so if you're looking for cooking the bag advice, um, then I had like a little, mm, like a koozie kind of thing that you could put the bag into. So I pour the hot water in there. And then seal it up, let it soak for, you know, five, ten minutes, whatever it was. And then open it up. Check how I had my ratios pretty exact. Um, About 500, 600 milliliters of water was perfect. And then I'd spoon in some instant potatoes or, um, you know, some kind of thickener. Sometimes I'd use uh, TVP, which is textured vegetable protein. Thicken it up, and then uh, I, once again, don't like cleaning my spoon. So then I'd like seal it up, uh, and then tilt it on its side, and then snip the corner off. And because I was so lazy eating, like I didn't like to sit up and eat and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of lay back and then like pipette squeeze my food into my mouth, like a like a lazy trash human that I am. This is so bizarre to me. <laughs> yeah, dude. I would like lie down. I was so wiped from hiking. I'd just like be cooking on my belly or whatever. And then I'd just like lie back on my air pad and then just squeeze the ramen into my face. And everyone would just make so much fun of me for it. But the funny thing is, is like the through hike, like all the day hikers and weekend hikers would be like, dude, you're a disgusting trash person. What's going on? But the through hikers are like, dude, that's genius no cleaning like no mess on your hands nothing you just like roll up the ziploc when you're done eating it and put it in your trash bag yeah you're lucky that you got a trail name early on because i guarantee (laughs) it would have been something based off that like yeah i'd be like you know trash ramen or something i don't know squeeze or like Go-Gurt. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know. Yeah, Gogurt. Yeah, Gogurt would have been a good one. Actually, I have a couple like alternate trail names. Also, um, the the more funny ones. So one of them is uh, is your is your podcast PG? Go for it. Whatever you need. All to right. Say. It's it's called my alternate trail name is Pisshound, because I have like a really strong nose for like ammonia and urea, and I can literally tell anywhere on trail somebody has just kind of turned off and peed on stuff. So I'd be like, oh man, somebody peed here. And so they would call me Pisshound for that reason. 
Okay. <laughs> so I guess, I guess a good option. Yeah, that would if I. That's not a family friendly trail name to give to people. So yeah, well, then you'd go by PH, and then that would work. Yeah, you exactly. being the scientific type that you are. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a guy on trail whose name was Itchy. Uh, a friend of mine, and, and Itchy is short for Itchy Butthole. And it's like, oh, dude, man, you have to tell people when they ask you your trail name that your name is Itchy Butthole. Like, <laughs> oh, God, I could not imagine. So what's, like, a good story that you tell your friends and family now when they ask you about your crazy AT through hike? Um, hmm, the best story. Oh, okay, here's one. Ragnar and I and our buddy Poseidon who's hiking with us at this time, we're in Shenandoah. And if anyone knows anything about Shenandoah, it's freaking awesome. You can go and there's all these like, uh, what are they called? Um, it's called, like, there's like Big Sky or something. I can't remember. All these like little like Shenandoah stores and you know, restaurants and stuff you can just go get food and stuff at. So we're at one of them and we roll up and, you know, it's a hot day, whatever, and you're hiker trashy you know, slam a whole meal of, you know, family-sized meal of fried chicken between two of us. And our buddy Poseidon had kind of kept going, and so he was ahead of us. And then I go into the store, and I was like, hey, man, let's just grab, like, some beers. So I grab a six-pack of Bud Tall Boys, right, for, you know, we're planning to end up at this place called uh, Bird's Nest, um, which is one of the shelters. Uh, So, you know, this is... Semi trail magic? I don't know. So when I got to the counter, she rang it up as one. I bought, I grabbed a whole six pack. She had rang it up as one Budweiser when she thought it meant one, like a, that's a singular can. So I got the whole six pack for like a buck 25 or whatever the price was for beer. Cause beer was genuinely like cheaper than the water at that point. If you're going to buy a bottle of water. Now they had water you could just fill up your stuff with, but I got the beer. So then we hike up to Bird's Nest and our buddy is a little past us. Um, so we get to the shelter and there are, there's this like, you know, whatever outward bound kind of thing. It's this guy who lives in the area in Shenandoah and does guided trips. And he's got these high school kids out on like a, a one or one and a half week kind of excursion hike. Um, just, you know, get them out into the woods kind of thing. So we roll up, you know, dirty trash kind of through hikers and we're there and we're just like oh man these friggin' high school kids are here whatever so we both like pull out our we had bought the six pack of beer and our buddy poseidon was past us so we were like oh now instead of two beers each we get three beers each so we cracked the first one shotgun it like in front of all these kids and just slam it like four seconds to drink the shotgun and we're like slam him on the ground we're like yeah so then the guy was like oh man dude would it be cool if i got a beer because i can't really like buy it with these kids you know it's not so we're like oh no worries dude here you go gave him a beer and he's like oh perfect and he you know he's making this elaborate dinner for all of them on this humongous stove or whatever so he has his beer and then we like crush two more beers kind of thing and so that night then the shelter is recently opened to overnight stays but it's like full of mice so you know while we're eating we can see just mice like crawling around on the rafters and one gets on somebody's sock or something and so we're, we're bedding down for the night and we're just hearing the mice and it's like kind of one of these platform shelters and there's mice you can hear them like like all inside this platform we're like ah oh, um, 
and it's kind of gross and you're just like oh, am i gonna get like some weird virus from these whatever so i'm like there and i'm like paranoid about like weird mouse diseases so i'm st- i just start like killing mice like i pick up like a piece of burnt wood and like turn my flashlight on i see the mouse it like freezes in the corner i whip a piece of wood at it and kill it and then like another one i i kind of glanced and he like runs around and i chase him around the shelter and then kill him with this like high school kid's shoe basically that I just grabbed. And so I killed like three mice that night. And eventually we were like, this place is like literally infested. So we all move out and like into the camping area and like go to sleep because like this is, you know, like ground zero for mice di- you know, and, and diseases and stuff. None of us want to sleep in the shelter. So that's kind of a funny, like, story I can tell friends and family and stuff that, you know, is kind of captures the ratchet experience of the trail, but like not, you know, it's not one of those real ones where you, you know, a crazy occurrence that you, you can't really talk about in polite company. That's yeah. That sounds like such a grungy shelter. That yeah. I, I mean, would not that would even go near. Definitely. One of the times I felt like a badge of honor for being just hiker trash and being like, yeah, man, like getting out here, handling these mice, like it's nothing showing these college I and mean, these high school kids. What's up? Shotgun and beers and killing mice. Shotgun, shotgun and beers and killing mice. It's a nice, uh, contrast, uh, the first through hiker that you encountered. <laughs> yeah. Like, like Actually, Oh, that's cool. And then these kids are like, I don't want to through hike. If it's about shotgunning beers and like, right. Hey, let, let's not be, you know, fooling ourselves the at is a lot of fun it is very difficult but it can also be a lot of fun especially if you take seven months like i did (laughs) you know there's definitely uh tons of great experiences sprinkled in um the hiking is like it's just what gets you to yeah to the fun stuff right right. and every once in a while the hiking itself is fun you get those amazing views and stuff but mostly it's just kicking your ass oh yeah you live for those little moments that you can you can gather on trail. Right, exactly. So what do you think you took away from your hike? <sighs> took away from my hike. Um, I think it's really, yeah, just like kind of what we were speaking on earlier. Work hard. Embrace the suck. Um, if you love something enough, it'll be worth it, no matter how difficult it is. And I think you can really translate that into the rest of your life, you know, whether it is pursuing a career that you want, um, working hard on your personal relationships. I, I have a um, kind of mentality that life and your relationships are like a garden and you have a small hose, right? And that hose is your time and you can water all of them kind of well. You can water some of them really well. Or you can water one of them awesome and neglect the rest. So whatever it is, you're putting your you have to think of time as a finite resource. And that's the water in this analogy. And that you can put it all into your career, put it all into your personal, whatever it is. But you have to strike that balance in your life. And so as long as you love what you're doing, you love the wife or husband that you're with, you love your friends, whatever it is, if you work hard, it's not gonna be you're not gonna feel like you're working hard, no matter what it is. I love that. That's a great analogy. Do you feel like your life has changed in any ways since you've hiked? Yeah. Um, I think I'm definitely more, like I had kind of mentioned earlier, I think I'm definitely more conscious about minimalism. I think it's a very common thing for post-trail through hikes to be like, sell everything and buy a van and live in it and just hike kind of thing. So I'm more conscious about 
my minimalism? Do I need that thing? Is it vital to my life? Is it going to improve my life? Or is it just going to give you that temporary endorphin rush of, you know, like a drug? Is it just going to be something that you purchase and then it's going to become unimportant to you? So I'm much more conscious of like what I what I buy, what I invest my time into, all those kind of things. And I tried to live much more minimalist now than I did before. Because before I was just like a every, you know, yuppie you'd ever seen at a Brooks Brothers store, to be honest. Like, you know. <laughs> what kind of car do you drive now? Uh, still got my my old Mazda from college. She's purring. I just took it on like a in my, uh, the last couple of months, I've been road tripping around the U.S. with friends. I think I calculated that I put like almost 8,000 miles on it and still still chugging along. She's a great car. You know, that's what really matters. Does the car work? Does it get you to point A to point B? You know, does it not break down and cost you a lot of money? Good enough. You know, whereas before it was like, man, I need to buy this, you know, Corvette or I need to, ooh, what if I bought a Mercedes or ooh, what about this or that or the other thing, you know? You just get caught up in this like rat race to consume. And I think I'm much, much more divorced from that now. So all in all, do you think that your through hike helped you cope with the loss of your brother? Like, did you get what you kind of wanted to out of it? Yeah, I think definitely. Um, you know, dealing with loss is such a difficult thing. And a lot of people do deal with it in different ways. But... If you can get out there and put yourself 100% into something, the loss becomes a lot easier. So for me, it was going on this hike. For something big, it was also going on this hike and fighting and changing and becoming, you know, working for a charity. And for, you know, other people, whatever, you pour yourself into your work, pour yourself into your family, whatever it is, um... Just just, just work really, really hard at something and the loss and the space. The, I always found that I felt the saddest when I had those, that space to think and to, you know, think back and like really remember and nostalgia and all those things. That's when that wave of kind of like sadness would hit me. But if I was doing something, if I'm hiking, if I'm, you know, preparing, whatever it is, whatever I'm putting my energy into, your mind gets singularly focused on that thing. Humans are not great multitaskers. So just doing that alone, you know, deals with that loss. And so I think the hike was, you know, in a, in a very hard time in my life, exactly what I needed. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad that it helped you. If I'm not mistaken, you have uh, a foundation now? Yeah, or, so... Yeah. Talk about um, that. No problem. Um, so uh, my parents and I um, have set up a foundation called the Johan Abraham Foundation. Um, and its real goal and outreach is along the lines of education. Um, specifically... We're kind of right now um, doing a lot of work when it comes to uh, like technology and education. So uh, kind of the backstory to this is that Johan, you know, was in the military and he had met this awesome girl named Mandy. And Mandy was a teacher in um, this small Tennessee town where she's from, Elmwood, Tennessee, you know, kind of an hour and a half ish outside of Nashville. Very rural 
not a lot of resources. Everyone, you know, a huge majority of the population there is under the poverty line. That um, And my brother, you know, when he lived with Mandy, would do all kinds of stuff. He would, you know, bake for the bake sale for them and, like, just really get involved in, you know, community outreach and through Mandy be able to work with all these kids, you know, just donating time. He was not a rich guy. He was still in school. You know, he didn't have a lot of money to donate to people, but what he did have was time. So... You know, we wanted to continue that kind of um, mission and his, you know, being in the military and all those kind of things. He lived his life with a lot of purpose and a lot of service. So the goal for the foundation is to do those things. So now our short term goals for the foundation uh, over the last year is one thing, you know, and I don't know how familiar your audience is with this, but like. You know, I went to a very prestigious suburban school in Chicago, and I had all the resources in the world. I had professors, I mean, not professors, I had teachers with PhDs and master's degrees, all the access to technology I could want, you know, all those kind of things. And when we talked to Mandy about what's going on in her school, you know, she would really make it clear that a lot of these kids, you know, don't have an internet connection at home, don't have a computer at home, you know, things that we consider just so critical to day-to-day life. Now think about how that affects you. If you don't have a computer, how are you going to apply for a job online? Almost everything doesn't take a paper application. They just say go online and apply. Or how are you going to get extra help if you're in this rural community and you're trying to learn calculus and maybe not necessarily your high school teacher or something has the expertise to teach it or whatever it is. And, you know, talking to Mandy and other teachers in the area, they're like, technology resources are so dear. So one of the missions that we've um, worked on in the last two years is providing Chromebooks. So we basically, the foundation purchases this cart, this like classroom cart, sorry, classroom cart, and we fill it with like 30 Chromebooks. And essentially, like a teacher can just check it out for their class to do whatever they need, whatever they need those technology resources for, going online to look at, you know, educational YouTube videos or, you know, writing papers or whatever it is, they can have it for their classrooms that these districts can't necessarily afford in, you know, or in Elmwood. Um, So we've donated two carts already to the um, Forks River High School where Mandy teaches, and then another cart to the Smith County High School. And our goal is this year is to provide some more carts for the high school, because really when it, you know, middle school is important to have technology education, but high school is when it really gets critical. So we want to put some more carts for the high school to use. And then the secondary mission is my brother was um, just finishing his degree at Middle Tennessee State University uh, in the accounting department. So we also provide um, for the last year, we have provided a $5,000 scholarship for a, MTSU accounting student to apply to, which focuses on service. So last year we gave it to this guy named Blake, and Blake is, you know, now, I so I'd have to look this up exactly, but the guy essentially, like, you know, having this scholarship has allowed him to not work as much, and he's gotten a much better um GPA and is ready to like, you know, get it for next year. And the guy, he's got a great work ethic and um, we we wish the best for him. And we, we're so glad that our foundation can provide these financial resources for him to go out and to live a life of service. That's our goal is to create, not to create, but to empower and provide financial aid to these students who are, 
you know, are, are so, so important um, to our communities and that we would love to be able to, you know, we would love to be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and have millions and millions of dollars to tackle huge things like AIDS and malaria and stuff. But we're not. We're, you know, this is all mostly on friends and family donation at the moment. Um, part of the reason why I'm on this podcast, I'd love to have, you know, hikers and fans of hiking to check out our um, foundation at yafoundation.com. Um, but really, it's, you know, our goal is to further my brother's um, life of service through others. And so, uh, you know, like I said, we we're both really into technology. So that's one facet. And the other is, you know, scholarship for people in his um, in that program. And, you know, if we were to get a humongous endowment or all those kind of things, I would love to push this further. We have so much more we can do. There's literally an endless amount of work out there uh, to do. And we're starting small, you know, we can provide, we can, we can raise $5,000 to buy a, a, a cart full of Chromebooks. That's something that, you know, 50 people, if they donated a hundred bucks or a thousand people, if they donated five bucks can do. So that's our goal. That's what we're trying to push. Man, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's so awesome that you and your family were able to take such a loss and then end up turning it into such a gain and affecting other people's lives for the better. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly so unfortunate that, um, you guys lost Johan, but to think that through his loss and what you've gained, not only through, through hiking, but now through the, this foundation and scholarship that, um, you know, it, it's not for nothing and that you guys are continuing to impact people's lives and instill the things that Johan cared and believed about into other people, which that's amazing and uh it, you guys are awesome for doing that thank you thank you i mean couldn't do this without everyone's support so all credit due to family and friends and even random people you know from facebook i you know, I, I made a couple posts you know all those kind of things and you know friends of families like friends of you know some of my hiker friends have do- I mean, family of my hiker friends have donated it's amazing i mean the outreach of support none of these people knew my brother none of them knew anything about him you know they're totally disconnected but they've you know whatever it is $1 $5 $100 $10,000 every single dollar makes a difference and we're committed my family is committed um, to running this foundation with no like administrative costs borne by the foundation. We're trying to do everything, at least when we're small, you know, hopefully we could grow this into some massive foundation where we'd have full-time staff and stuff. But other other than that, right now, you know, our family is committed that every dollar that's donated goes towards the charity work. It is not spent on filing tax forms and all the kind of things, the administrative stuff that is required. So our goal is to put every dollar into use. That's great to hear that. Um, that's where the donations and the money are going straight to the, the technology for these kids. And, and exactly. The yeah. This is not, you know, you sometimes hear about these athletes who set up like foundations and it's just a way for them to like hide tax money and like, you know, employ their families and stuff. This is not what we are doing at all. We're very small scale at the moment and we're putting all of our dollars into the outreach. That's great. It sounds like you guys are doing it for the right reasons too. So, um, I will definitely link, um, yeah, the info to this. So thank you. Thank you. And check it out and hopefully donate and make a nice contribution because it, 
it sounds like an awesome cause and it sounds like it's already making a difference. Yeah. We'd love to do more. That's all I would say. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or mention while I have you on here? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the one thing I'd always been concerned about is, is gear when we started. So, um, I, I had a fairly, I would call it, but not budget, but like, you know, medium budget ultralight. Uh, you know, I didn't go out and buy the most expensive Cuban fiber Z pack stuff, but, uh, you know, as long as you think about what you're buying, try to buy light stuff and just keep what you take to the minimum, you're going to be light and it's going to make your hike so much better. So what kind of backpack did you have? So I had a ULA circuit, very popular on trail. I believe they even sell them some outfitters on trail. Um, kind of that mid plus priced ultralight pack, not quite the like down to the gram kind of ultralight, but yeah, pretty good. Um, let's see what else shoes. If any of you guys got wide feet out there, New Balance makes awesome wide sizes, like for people with wide feet or, you know, your foot starts to spread during the hike, check out New Balance. Um, I had a lot of trouble. I tried on Ultras, I tried on Hoka's and Sauconies, and, you know, I'd started with some Merrill um, Moab ventilators, and, like, none of them were really fitting the shape of my foot correctly. So New Balance, total lifesaver. The New Balance Leadvilles kept me going on trail. I used three pairs for the rest of my hike. They were great, super durable, got 700-plus miles out of them. Um, trekking poles, big fan of Black Diamond. I had a, an Alpine Carbon Cork, really comfortable. Uh, when people in the whites were, like, jamming and snapping poles and bending, you know, metal poles and stuff, these things were just totally rock solid. Still use them. I used them on a hike, like, two days ago. Uh, tent, let's see, well, my tent was a Lightheart Gear, So Long 6, perfect, like, one-plus person tent, a lot of extra room to, like, stash, um, your gear under the flies and even inside, um, the, the tent, uh, totally bomber, never had a problem with my whole hike, um, sleeping bag, huge, I'm a huge proponent of American-made stuff. And kind of boutique, like small, um, small manufacturer cottage industry stuff. So, Enlightened Equipment makes something called a Revelation quilt. It's a down quilt. Like saw it all over trail. It's become really popular. Obviously, if you do your research, you'll see them all over the ultralight gear lists. Really great quilt. My favorite piece of gear. Um, had a Thermarest X Light um, sleeping pad. A little expensive and people hate it because it's a little loud and crinkly, but totally bomber. Never had a hole, never had any problems. I had some friends with, you know, big Agnuses and other pads that uh, kind of had some leaking problems. I think one thing I would say for when it comes to sleeping pad, even in a shelter, try to put down your ground sheet because you never know what little nail pops or like splinters might put a hole. But if you've got a nice little ground sheet underneath you in the shelter, that tries that that'll help you preserve your gear for longer. Um, yeah, uh, snow peak titanium stove, stove and, uh, titanium tokes pot. This is what I use for that, that hot water to do the, um, the ramen every night. And yeah, uh, 
gear gear super important and it's something to be considered but don't ever consider not hiking because you don't have the best gear always get out there more than anything else yeah so that's great advice and um i would imagine that all your gear is like pretty sturdy and great because of all the effort you put into researching prior to embarking so yeah i'm still working working on hikes now i'm a little smelly to be honest after a through hike but <laughs> who cares once you get once you hike that first hour you're gonna smell again so it doesn't matter if your gear is smelly right do you have any uh future hikes planned future hikes planned um i definitely now that i've done the at i did it so slow to be honest i was seven months i mean 200 yeah 218 days i think it was calculated at like really slow so i would love in the next i don't know if i have another through in me coming up you know i i do have a life i need to get back to a career get back to all that kind of stuff um i'd love to to meet somebody and you know pursue a relationship you know in the near future i'm getting i'm over 30 now so it's not like you know i'm a right out of college kind of thing. So, uh, you know, there's other, like I said, that garden that needs to be watered. I have some other things that need to be watered beside the hiking garden. But I would love to um, become a much stronger hiker. I want to, like, really work on my fitness, really work on those, like, weekend trips and really, like, get out there. I actually listened to um, an interview with John Z, um, the founder of Palante Packs and stuff. He was kind of explaining his mentality and how he thinks and how, like, insanely detailed he is with how he thinks about gear and like literally the biomechanics of like how he hikes where he puts his foot all that kind of stuff and how that allows him to do 50 plus mile days like it's no problem i want to work on myself to you know really change my body and change how conscious i am and become a really really strong hiker so that if i ever got the chance to do another through hike. Like if I did the PCT, my goal would be to do it in no more than 125 days. And like a stretch goal, set it at 100 days. I really want to like get out there and push myself for the next hike. This one, you know, I did it to finish it. Now I want to do it to crush it. Nice. So Step like up the it, game. Step up yeah, the exactly. Game, yeah. And you know, everyone can get a week or two off work. Wouldn't it be cool if you were fast enough and you were a, you know, baller enough hiker that in, you know, 10 days off of work, you could crush a three, 400 mile, you know, through hike of like the Colorado trail or the long trail or something. You can get that time off of work. You just need to make yourself a better hiker to complete it in time. Right. Yeah. For that achievement. That would be awesome. But you also got to save some time to enjoy it too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so what he said, like some of the philosophy of like I, everyone out there, look up John Z. He's awesome. His philosophy is like, he's out there to hike. He loves hiking. He hikes from day break to you know past dusk like and the, for him camp is not that awesome you know for him hiking's that awesome so i just need to get that better mentality of like just get out there and beat those miles like you know you don't have to do it at four miles an hour but if you do it at three miles an hour for 15 hours you're gonna get a lot of miles that's 45 miles you know right yeah get and, those you, extra and you hours can do or... it it's all mental i'm gonna say that once you get your body to a certain state it all becomes mental Totally, totally. All right, so is there anywhere that you would like to point people in the direction to uh, for like social media or for your sure. foundation's website? Yeah, and then I'll link so, this stuff in the, in the notes as well. Mm -hmm. So the foundation you can find at yafoundation.com. 
Um, I'm in the process of working on it. I'm going to get the social media going for it. I'll get the Facebook group. I'll get the Instagram profile, all that kind of stuff for the foundation. Um, but also, uh, if you want to check me out, you can find me on Instagram at Stefan Saunters. Um, I had a different name on a different Instagram name pre-trail, but there's this awesome John Muir quote that, you know, changed my mind. And, uh, so that's, you can find me at Stefan Saunters, Facebook, Stefan Abraham, um, any perspective through hikers, feel free to send me a message. I'm more than happy to share my experience. Caveat being, I'm not an expert. I've only done this thing once. I went from being basically beyond a rookie to, I would say, a reasonable hiker. I'm not an expert. I'm not a mile crusher. But, you know, if you want to know about that experience, if you're not, if you're not, you know, I think it can be very intimidating to see all these super hikers out there, all these like hiking celebrities like Lint and like these guys who crushed like 50,000 miles in their hiking career. Um, we Ragnar and I met a dude named One Gallon up in Maine who is this legend. He's not even on, I don't think, any social media. He's just like legendary like hiker. And he was doing the whole ECT and we met him in Maine, like right south of, south of Katahdin. He was like, yep, hitting Katahdin. Then I got like 700 miles more up into Quebec. So like it's easy to get intimidated by these guys and girls who are just such monster hikers. But know that no matter where you are in life, you can get out there and do that, too. All right. Thank you for listening. If you or anyone you know is interested in being interviewed, please shoot an email to hikertrashpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at hikertrashpod and on Facebook. And until next time, happy trails.